0: You're listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network on bingemedia.net. And now, the binge aftertaste.
1: Everything's going to be okay. What's your name?
2: I'm Trent. This is my sister, Maddox. How old are you guys? I'll guess
1: I'm good at this. <laughs> You're 11, right, Trent? I'm six. No, really, are you 10, 11? He's not lying, he's six. I'm specifically six and a
3: quarter. She's 11. They're feeling unsafe, there is a lot going on here.
1: They're playing with us. Let's leave it.
0: Have you seen my children?
1: <laughs> is, it, is everyone trying to play a joke on us? Welcome. To this review of old, part of the binge movie aftertaste M. Night Shyamalan retrospective.
4: What if we spend this whole time trying to get out of here? We still don't make it.
1: Join Garrett, Matt, and the returning Mike Ganeri as they look at the entire span of Shyamalan's work.
4: I don't like this dynamic at all.
1: From that little known e weekly emission, The Sixth Sense all the way through his new release Old coming out July 23rd, the boys look at all the signs of what makes Shyamalan possess one of the most fascinating careers in the history of Hollywood.
3: We really don't know what happened.
1: Why did Shyamalan become the black sheep and not join his family in the doctor's profession?
2: It will be too short if we don't try.
1: When did everything go wrong?
2: We'll find another way.
1: Why the hell did Mike not see The Sixth Sense until this retrospective? His nose is bleeding. I think he got that much. from trying to defend himself. The answers to all these questions and more, all coming up courtesy of Binge Media.
3: I think we will all have to leave this beach. Old, released July 23rd, 2021. Budget on this was $18 million. Box office, so far, an astounding $27.5 million dollars. And this was directed by the man of the hour, Mr. M. Night Shyamalan. Boys, we are finally back together. Our reviews have been posted back to back in the last few weeks. But truth be told, we haven't spoken to each other in about two months. Great getting back reacquainted, even if it is to talk more Shyamalan. Mike, sir, welcome back. How are you today?
4: Good. I'm old now of <laughs> how much time has passed.
3: <laughs> Hopefully you're not aging every half hour. But the man who is aging is probably the one with the child on this podcast, the one and only, Mr. Matthew Goudreau How was your first night with your child, sir? It was above
2: average, I will say that. But going by what I have ahead of me, I'm not holding my
3: breath just yet. Well, if it made it past the first day, you made it past the baby that is in the movie we are discussing today. Oh my gosh. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Old! Now, this is the movie we've been building up to. The production history on this one is so interesting. But since I haven't spoken to Mike in so long, Mike, what was your anticipation going in? Had you heard anything before you went in? How many times have you seen this?
4: Uh, My anticipation was pretty high. Um, I've liked the last couple Shyamalan movies, as people who've been listening to the show have noticed. And, I don't know, it just seemed like an interesting premise. And I thought that the trailer that played during the Super Bowl was interesting. It was a unique premise. It was like the kind of thing that you don't see a whole lot these days, that like sort of body horror on kind of like a mainstream scale. And I thought okay I, I could be into that and the reviews that were coming out were like it was that situation where the people that I follow and have respect for their opinions and stuff liked it generally but there were also a bunch of negative reviews so I was like okay this is kind of a divisive one so we'll, we'll see what happens here and I saw it in the theater with the packed crowd which was Very cool to like have that again after so long Mm -hmm. away. I've seen other movies since then. I've only seen it the once, but I had a very memorable experience seeing it. So uh, I'm looking forward to getting into it.
3: Can't wait to discuss it with you. I also can't wait to discuss it with my other on this podcast, Mr. I have been negative on Shyamalan. (laughs) I think the only good review you've done this month was probably Split. The last few Shyamalans, you have not been high on, Matt. It's been kind of a rough go for you. Coming into old, what were your expectations? Oh, boy.
2: I did like The Visit. I gave that a mild recommendation. Not as, not as much as me and Mike did. Oh, of course not. But, you know, you guys are wrong more
0: times than <laughs> I
4: am. It might be Stockholm Syndrome. I, yeah. I will acknowledge that <laughs> that might be part of it.
2: We're also doing what no sane person should do, is watching these movies in a consecutive order. Sure. And yeah. not stopping after the first two, like 99% of the world does.
4: <laughs> well, I think that it makes... The ones that are bad, and I I know that a lot of people would say most of them are bad, but I think it makes ones like Last Airbender just seem really awful. I think, like, maybe if I had seen it, nah, it still would be awful no matter how I saw it. Or, like, After Earth. If I had seen After Earth just on its own, not in connection to other Shyamalan movies and having seen Last Airbender immediately before it, it might not have seemed so bad. I might have said, you know, after her colorful effects, Will Smith, it's okay. But I remember just being very done with it when I saw it. So I feel like it helps certain movies and hurts other ones to watch them all in conjunction like this.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of pain, that kind of describes my anxiety going into this movie. In no small part because Glass really, really disappointed me as a fan of both of the previous movies. But... I'm always interested when Shyamalan does quote unquote original material. I'm sure we'll at least mention that this is not something that's 100% from his brain.
0: Mm-hmm. It is
2: based on prior material to what extent mm-hmm. No, because I've never read it. But the trailer that you just talked about the Super Bowl, that kind of, I don't want to say got me excited because every time I feel a certain amount of leniency towards Shyamalan, I remember, oh, he's probably going to fuck this up somehow. It's kind of an inescapable feeling for me, unless I prove it otherwise. But I don't believe that until I physically sit down in the theater. But I noticed some things. You read this plot synopsis, and it's only two sentences. It's everything you need to know. But I could see pieces of stuff he's done before acting like a natural progression to this movie. Because there are some thematic things that he's doing that are kind of callbacks, Mm -hmm. even tied into his comeback if you want to call it that, but that saves the actual movie. The cast really got me excited. I thought this was a very interesting ensemble that he collected. A lot of respectable character actors, people I haven't seen in a very long time. Some I've seen very recently and I'm quite fond of. So there were enough factors that when I walked into the theater, both the night I saw it and earlier this evening, uh, I should say for the record, I saw it tonight by myself. I was in a RPX theater, which is a pretty nice setup. Completely alone with this gigantic screen. It's almost an IMAX. It was all encompassing, and it certainly factors into some components of the movie, but all things being as they are, I was not dreading it. I didn't have to get dragged. But when I sat down, I was glad that it was not two and a half hours of my time. I wasn't going to see a superhero movie. I wasn't going to go see another superhero movie called Fast 9. I was seeing something a little bit more toned down, which did get me excited. I love body horror. I'm, Cronenberg's I'm, my favorite director, so that's always gonna intrigue me in some capacity.
3: Yeah, pretty much the same as you guys. I had only seen that Super Bowl trailer. I had not seen anything other than that. I didn't see the one that was released just a month or so ago. I walked in kind of apprehensive. I was intrigued that Shyamalan may be doing body horror, even if this was PG-13. I saw it the one time me and Matt had recorded a show that we're going to mention at the end of this podcast. And I jumped out, went to go see it. And then the next day I was fumbling through my notes and we were supposed to record later on that day. And Matt, when you said you're not going to be able to record that day, I was like, you know what? My notes were so jumbled. I like to get the narrative down, but I like to get my opinions down at the same time. And I could not get anything in order. So I was glad to have that extra day so I could actually get back to the theater. I saw it again yesterday. I was glad to have that extra day because there's a lot to dissect here. The making of this is interesting. Matt, you mentioned the graphic novel. You know, I tried getting a hold of that right before this podcast. So maybe I could give it a gander, maybe see what exactly he adapted. Wasn't able to read it before this podcast, unfortunately. But I did hear interviews with him night where he said he really gravitated towards the idea of blinking and then your kids are older one day your parents are changing your diapers the next you're changing your parents another thing that's interesting about this movie it was one of the only big budget movies that was in production during the pandemic they were out in the Dominican Republic he made sure he's the one who paid for the hotel he's the one who made sure that the people you know everyone from the maids the people giving the food the actors everybody had a room everybody was separate everybody was abiding by protocol and none of them had any positive COVID cases, and he's actually very proud of that if you listen to him in interviews leading up to the release of this. Another thing about this movie, it was a family process. His daughter was on the second unit of this movie, and his other daughter did a song that's on the soundtrack, so it's really weird. And he has said in interviews that it's been kind of surreal to see pictures of his daughter on his lap during the making of Unbreakable, and now there are pictures of her standing next to him on set while they're making this movie. I thought that was kind of interesting as well. And as if he didn't have enough on his plate there was a hurricane during the making of this that destroyed their set right before they started filming and they were able to see this uh, is what
4: happens when you film outside Philadelphia
3: yeah (laughs) great point (laughs) so it destroyed that side of the beach that they were going to work on but they waited a couple days and they were able to go on the other side and they were able to fedangle it until they were able to get the shots that they wanted and needed but yeah there was a hurricane on this movie as well so it was a process getting this movie made but you know you gotta give Shyamalan this we can say anything about this movie boys and I and I think Mike you might have said this during Glass or one of the shows that I had edited during this month this may not be the best Shyamalan but is the most Shyamalan
4: oh yeah this is him no one else could have made this movie the way that he made it and I think that's one of the things that people dislike sometimes about him is that they kind of wish he would get out of the way a little bit and I think that the people who are really into him he does have a very dedicated following the people who Our fans work, worked. I think that's what they like. So I mean, he's for better or worse. He is in this in 2021 one of the few directors who is by himself a brand name and everything that comes with that in terms of style, theme, just approach to storytelling. And there's a lot that goes into that. A lot that's you know maybe good and maybe bad.
2: I do find it ironic that when I saw both Black Widow and Fast Nine, they played this trailer. And people laughed when they saw Sean Mulan's name.
3: Still, huh? That's the
2: point. Yeah, still to this day. It it was a combination of laughter and, oh, this is going to suck. That's the cachet that his name brings to the general audience nowadays, or at the very least in New England, because we hate Philadelphia.
4: It's almost like a William Castle thing in some ways. Like, William Castle uh, was the guy who did all those movies in the 50s and 60s, like The Tingler and uh, House on Haunted Hill. All those, like, B-movies, horror movies, haunted house movies where he would come out in the trailers and he would talk about, you know, oh, this one we have special seats rigged up that will give you a shock if the tingler is on screen or at this one you could devote on whether or not Dr. Sardonicus is punished at the end of the film. <laughs> he would make these like Vincent Price, you know, and it was like this kind of gleeful, fun kind of approach to it. And I almost feel like that Milan has become kind of a figure like that in some ways, just a, a lot more self-serious, I think, but kind of more pretentious. But a similar kind of thing where I feel like the laughter is almost part of the Experience. part of the vibe in the way like he's kind of challenging you every time he he like does one of his trailers in like is this going to be one that you like or not you know what i mean i kind of feel like there's almost that kind of provocation kind of playful provocation at this point where it's like just kind of the degree to which it's intentional or not i'm not totally sure it feels like it's just part of the process in a way so it's like getting a uh, splashed at sea world or a dalger show or something it's like it's like mm-hmm. part of the whole <laughs> experience
3: so we open up with some palm trees and we jump in a van with the family we're going to be spending this film with Shyamalan's definitely setting things up here the kids asking how old he has to be before he can scuba dive and then the mom saying that she can't wait until her daughter's older so she can hear her sing Shyamalan still hasn't learned the act of subtlety has he
4: well I mean I don't know this is a movie where it's just really about one thing you know what I mean Uh It's so hyper-focused in what it's trying to do that, well, in a way, I think until the end, and we'll get to that, but I think it's sort of, like, so hyper-focused in what it wants to do that, like... Subtlety would almost maybe be self-defeating in a way. Maybe. I don't know. I I, I don't know if I want to give this away too much right now, but I mostly like this movie, and I I might end up being more of the defender of it than you guys on this one. I'm not sure. We'll see on this one.
2: So let me preface everything I am about to say by mentioning that I think this movie has more on its mind than I was expecting when I really sat and thought about it. Unfortunately, you can tell this is a Shyamalan movie right off the bat because I think the dialogue throughout most, if not all, of this movie is utterly horrendous. And it is also very shorthanded storytelling. Because we cannot give a whole lot of exposition, we're going to have the son literally ask every principal character, what is your name and what do you do? Mm. I think that is fucking embarrassingly elementary storytelling. And once again, the kids talk like adults and the adults talk like kids. Where the parents are at the front of the car, but they're like, "Oh, should we?" I don't even remember what the, what the conversation is. Like, they don't talk to each other. I don't know if this is the most Shyamalan movie Shyamalan has ever made. I still reserve that for Lady in the Water, but it's still unmistakably his, for better or worse. And I think both are present in this movie. I will say some pretty negative things on top of what I've already said, but there is a bit, quite a bit in this movie I did enjoy. I, I read no reviews going into this. I went in cold as the Arctic. So let me immediately say, this is not, if you're expecting another lady in the water rant people from me, sorry, you're not going to get it.
3: So the mom's saying, this is much better than Cancun, and that she can't believe that she found this resort online. So... <laughs> Dumb white people. <laughs> How do we feel about this family that we are going to be spending this time with? You know, we're going to see them get older, obviously. Spoiler. Yeah, <laughs> spoiler. <alert. laughs> How do we feel about this family?
4: Well, I mean, um, casting Gael Garcia Bernal and Vicky yes. Krebs, I think is how you say her name, yeah, that's what, yeah. uh, is just a great way to start off, just because those are two very, very talented actors, very... Uh, well, I guess I've only seen Vicky Krebs in Phantom Thread, so I don't know how she is in other movies. I, maybe she's terrible in every other movie, I don't know, but <laughs> Gael Garcia Bernal certainly is, is an extremely reliable and uh, dependable actor, and casting the two of them, and they've got a lot of integrity, and they just bring a certain level of class to it, and so I think that's starting off on a good note, and I thought that the kid actors were also pretty good, which is interesting because that's sometimes the case in Shyamalan movies and other times it's not the case. The dialogue, you're right, uh, is a little on the nose, kind of, you know, sort of a little elementary. It didn't bother me so much here. I kind of, I'm going to make it a point of comparison, which is that this is sort of when he made The Happening, Shyamalan talked about how that was his attempt to do, like, a B movie, and I mm-hmm. think that movie really fails at that. This is... I think him succeeding at that. Well, most this is him sort of mostly succeeding at that, doing kind of a B-movie with pretensions. And I think that one of the reasons why is that there's nobody in this movie who is doing what Mark Wahlberg was doing and happening here. And he's he's got people who are more consistent and who are, I guess, just have a better approach to their characters. So I, I think from the bat, he, he like has the right focus on the characters. I'm glad that it, it's following these people played by Bernal and Kreps and, and then rather than say Rufus Sewell and uh, his wife or uh, Ken Lung and, and Nikki uh, Amuka Bird. I'm looking at the, the cast list right now. And so, yeah, so I think that I, I, at the beginning, I was, I liked where these characters are going.
2: I liked the parents, but This movie reaffirms my theory, and I don't even think it could be a theory anymore at this point because I've been proven right considerably more than wrong that Shyamalan gets good performances because they're good actors. Because I've seen both of them do pretty remarkable work. I love the Motorcycle Diaries. That's what I know Gail Garcia Bernal from the most. Yeah, I've seen Phantom Thread, although if you ask me, a scene to recall from it, I couldn't tell you a single fucking thing. See,
4: that's the only PTA movie I really love. But anyways, go ahead. Okay,
2: but I think they're good, but I don't think it's because of the directing because I think there's one person in this movie who is almost as bad as Mark Wahlberg.
4: Oh, interesting. I think I might know who you're going to say, but we'll get there. I I think I do too.
3: They get to the resort and are greeted by the head of the resort, And he starts saying that the waitress will take good care of them. She brings them drinks as the kids head to the drinking fountain. Shyamalan's giving us a camera tour as he's kind of moseying around here. And the kids meet Idlib, who collects conch shells. The camera work in this movie. There's some very interesting choices that we'll talk about later but he got the dp from it follows on this film
4: oh that makes a lot of sense
3: yeah and, and you know what and after i watched it the first time i was so blindsided by some of the th- choices he makes that i had to see okay who exactly did he get to dp this yeah it's the same guy who did it follows and when you find that out you're right mike it makes a lot of sense
4: i'm kind of interested in revisiting it just to pay closer attention to the direction because the first time i saw it Although I knew the premise, I didn't know where it was going to go in terms of what was going to happen to all the characters and everything. And I did get kind of caught up in that, To, I mean, it's not like I was not focusing on the direction at all. It stands out. But uh, I kind of want to see it again to take closer look and, and, and closer note of what Shyamalan is doing with the camera. Because at parts, it's very very uh, kind of bold and, like, not in the way that direction usually is uh, in mainstream film these days, where it's using the camera in a way that's really directing your attention with the camera and not just with the editing.
2: So it's so funny that you mentioned the, it follows comparison. I noticed with a lot of Shyamalan's camera work and his cinematographer as well, you notice there's a lot of hand shots in this movie, way more Mm -hmm. than I think he's ever done. A lot of off-center camera work. Mm Mm-hmm. I think he uses the blurring lens to pretty good effect later on. One thing I'll commend is that the it's gonna be I can't believe I'm comparing Shaman to this fucking guy, but the way he shoots the palette of the beach and even some of the visuals like when you get the the more shocking moments of the movie. I don't know if it's just because I rewatched it recently, but it reminds me of Ari Aster's movies. Oh. Like I thought of Midsommar a lot with with the the sunscape, and I thought of Hereditary not just because Alice Wolf is in this, but The way he frames one sequence in particular reminded me a lot of towards the end of Hereditary.
4: Sure, and and I like what you're saying about the way he shoots the beach. I think one thing that is well done about this movie, and it's not like this isn't like a huge give him a medal for this or anything like that, but one thing I think is interesting about this is that I feel like when you are watching the film, and it's almost all shot outdoors, when you're watching it, you can basically always tell how far along the time has progressed on the beach in terms of what time of day it is, how many hours have passed, the sun, and everything like that. And that could go wrong if it's done poorly, especially with the characters, spoiler alert, aging. I think that there's a grounding there. And when you think about some of the challenge in making this movie, where it's pretty much all set in one location, and there's a limited, fairly small cast, and there's... I mean, I'm going to make another like weird comparison, 12 Angry Men. When you have like one location, you have to think of all kinds of different ways that you can use the camera to tell the story because you can't just set one camera up or whatever and just have it be mostly stationary and everything like that because it's, people are going to be so bored out of their minds that they're just in one location. So when you think about what the challenges that poses, just having a limited number of characters in one specific location, that's something that's kind of deceptively difficult, I think. And I think that that's another reason why I kind of wanted to, to go back and see how that works, because I feel like there's a version of this movie, and you guys might think that this is the, that movie, but I think there's a version of this movie that is a total, complete, incoherent mess. And the fact that it's not that, I think, a sign that there was a lot of care that went into, for the most part, the direction of this, if not necessarily the screenplay, because I, I do think that that's one of the shakier parts of it.
3: Another uh, interesting uh, decision that deshaun made, this was shot on film. He decided mm-hmm. to do this on film. You don't see too many filmmakers take that stance anymore, but yeah, he he didn't want to go digital with this. He went all film with this. It is when we go back to the resort that we realize, even as the dad's playing with his kids, that not everything is up to snuff when it comes to their marriage. And Shyamalan's conveying this with slow zooms on the mom as the dad's playing with his kid. We are meeting more of the people on the beach as kids are roaming around, asking them who they are and what they do. And Matt, this was a big complaint of yours at the beginning of this podcast.
2: Oh, yes, it was. And speaking of... Movies that this reminded me of with the cocktails that they drink right before and the way that there's something is immediately off about this resort. I thought of Gore A Care for Wellness a lot throughout this movie, which has sort of a, a similar idea behind it where the resort slash spa in both cases is really a front for some medical work. And ironically, mortality plays a role in both movies. By the way, if no one's seen A Care for Wellness, I highly recommend you check it out for the visuals, and Jason Isaacs is great. If you can get past the fact that Dane DeHaan should not be a leading man ever.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Dane DeHaan, the actor who so boldly asked the question, what if Leonardo DiCaprio was sick?
2: He looks like a failed clone of Leonardo DiCaprio that was grown in a lab. <laughs> he really does. <laughs> Wasn't in the test tube long enough, and he's smaller, scrawnier, more elf-looking. But Shyamalan, I think, is also too, he's too forthcoming with the way he depicts this resort, that immediately you're set off to the fact that something's wrong. He doesn't leave a lot up to your imagination for, I would say, the most portions of this movie. I think later on there's some elements where he gets away more with PG-13 than I was expecting. Yeah. At the same time, I don't think he leaves much to your own expectations when it comes to depicting this spa, with everything from the overly friendly staff to, wow, all these other people are here too, and... Can you believe we found this online? It's just so obvious.
4: Though. And you've got the manager who looks exactly like, I, I maybe no one else thought this, but who looks exactly like a 1980s Charles Dance. Did anybody <laughs> else think that? I was like, <laughs> is this guy going to age into Charles Dance? It's My dear brother, brother Moopsie!
2: I thought it was like William Hurt after a cancer diagnosis. Yeah.
4: Oh God, Petro. So the dude's name is Gustav Hammerstein which sounds made up. It sounds like it sounds like an American's made up version of a Swedish name, but it's apparently real. It's a fucking Bond villain. <laughs>
3: you had to work Bond into this one too, didn't you? We yeah, hang that God, I'm
2: trying to think if there's any people in here who are in a Bond movie. I don't think so.
3: <laughs> we hear
2: that oh,
4: vicky, vicky krebs will show up at some point yeah you know, she'll she's, she's a european lady she'll show up at some mm-hmm. point holding a gun and
3: we hear that Iblin doesn't have any friends and trent tells them now that they're friends maybe when they're older they can go to college together so here we go with as Shamlan setting this up here as we cut to the couple again who say they agreed to take the kids on one more vacation before revealing that they are going to separate this is also <laughs> where we hear about a benign tumor And Matt, you talk about the dialogue. I think this is where his dialogue. And Mike, for God's sake, your fucking words just echo in my head every single movie of Shyamalan's I watch now. Because you're the one who said that there's always that one instance where that dialogue of his really hits you over the head, even in his best movies, as being really bad. And this is some of the clunkiest, as Guy tells her, you're always thinking about the past because you work at a museum. All this shit. Oh my fucking god.
2: You focus too much on the future because you're an insurance analyst.
3: Like, for God's sakes, does this guy have to be so literal with all of his dialogue? Yeah. Yeah, it hit me over the fucking head.
4: So, okay, so I have not read the original Swiss graphic novel Sandcastle, but I read about it after I saw the movie. I was like, I want to find out what's different because I heard it was. Similar in some ways, but very different in others. And apparently the original graphic novel takes place entirely on the beach. There's no scenes at the hotel, either at the beginning or the end of the film. It's all on the beach. And I don't don't know if that would have necessarily been the right choice for a movie, but Mm -hmm. I do think that the clunkiest parts of the movie are mostly at the end. But I think sort of the beginning and the end, you see kind of him... more kind of awkwardly putting the pieces into place and you can kind of see the movements in a way that is maybe a little, it's kind of distracting. Although I will say there there is one part of the movie that I thought was c- comes back at the end. It, it did take me by surprise. So I want to give him a little bit little bit of credit there, but we'll get there.
3: Trent opens a letter and he starts reading the symbols that are on the piece of paper. We cut to a very male gazy uh scene as a woman undresses on the beach and some big guy just seemingly stalks her and my god is it just me or did this look like a complete blue screen i understand this was probably on the day then he had to shoot and the set wasn't available or something but man you guys know the scene i'm talking about right when the sky's all blue and there's no sun out
4: i know you're talking about i didn't get that feeling but maybe if i went back and saw it again i would notice
2: i can tell you that girl's ass wasn't green screened, and I say that, and I'm saying that of all people, if if I'm the person who notices that, then clearly it's gotta be good, but this scene also feels like it's from a completely different movie. Yes! It
4: does. It's very odd.
2: Almost like this guy... Either he's in on whatever the secret is, or it's about to turn into a parody of the O.J. Simpson trial.
4: What do you think is the purpose of the scene? You know, I'm thinking about it now. Is it, do you think it's just kind of like a red herring kind of idea? I think so. Like, this guy, yeah, yeah. make him seem kind of sinister, but he's actually not, you know. Mm-hmm. But if you include the scene without context, it's kind of like, well, what's that about? And so when he does show up later, you go, oh, this guy seems a little shady.
3: I think that's exactly what it is. We get the vain mother trying to tell her daughter not to eat wrong as the head of the resort tells the Kappa family about a beach that he only tells his favorite guests about. We find a woman named Patricia having a seizure, and we meet Jared, the nurse and a doctor who comes over as well. Guys, we're meeting all these characters in this one clunk of film here. Do we like the way these characters are introduced? Is it too clunky for you? What are you guys feeling about the way these characters are introduced?
2: Not only is it too clunky, I immediately knew the cop was going to come back into play when I realized he wasn't on the beach later on.
4: See, that makes sense, but it surprised me, actually. I think just because so much had happened in the meantime that I had just kind of forgotten that that part even existed. But you're right that it should have been more clear, but yes.
2: There was that and there was one other, oh, it was the symbol, the decrypted message Mm -hmm. that the boys exchanged. I'm like, oh, this is definitely coming back. There's no way this does not contain like a secret survival tip or it's a map. Yeah. I hate the fact that I can I'm not a genius by any means. I'm a Jets fan. Of course, I'm fucking not. <laughs> but so much of the reveals and the, my expectations and Shyamalan just being so... upfront's the word I keep using, but I think it's the most reliable adjective, is that I'm not genuinely surprised when these things come back into play because I know how Shyamalan writes. He doesn't dangle carrots in front of you without letting you eat them. He doesn't pull them back or throw them into the garbage well, but um, which is where 50% of his movies belong, and I'd probably say more than 50 at this point.
4: Well, then the weird thing, though, is that you're right about, like, the, the coded messages and this cop coming back and everything like that. But then the actual twist at the end is completely out. Like, I, yeah. It's so out of the blue. It's so not set up at all. Or, like, you know, it really is like there's no way you could have guessed it. You could not have paused the movie halfway through and had somebody guess that this ends up being... Uh, a takedown of the pharmaceutical
2: industry. <laughs> I, I was by myself in the theater for the for second viewing, and I, I was now, what I was cognizant having seen the movie. I was looking for hints or little clues because I was saying to myself, "Surely I missed something," because there's no way he pulls this much of an audible without laying the breadcrumbs. And sure enough, I was just as dumbfounded the second time as I was the
3: first. <laughs> well speaking of the man of the hour we cut to a tour bus that is going to be taking the kappa family to the beach and wouldn't you know it it is being driven by Shyamalan himself why does this seem more like lady in the water shamalan he's giving himself some lines here he's driving his cast into oblivion here this seems more metaphor than i was expecting boys when it comes to a Shyamalan cameo
2: and he bookends the movie too this is not his exclusive which makes it all the more distracting um, great point. And His acting has not improved unfortunately. Although Oh, wait, I
4: disagree there. I think he's I think he's a better actor here than he has been in the past.
2: Yeah, but that's like saying would you rather walk in broken glass or eat dog shit? Like <laughs> not either of that are going to be a pleasant experience. The, the funniest thing was that before the movie actually started, Shyamalan talks to you saying like, "Hey, thanks for coming back to the theaters." When I made my first movie in 1999, <laughs> that's a direct quote from him. So his first two movies even he's I would
4: say that's revisionist history yeah, there. I'm
2: like Really? You made Lady in the Water and the last Airbender and you're gonna draw a line about your first two being the ones that you're gonna shun. If anything, you should be saying, I should get a pass because my first movies aren't very good.
4: Well you know, know how it's turning out. <laughs> well, you know how Tarantino he'll, like, in the trailers for his movies these days, it'll say, like, the ninth film from Quentin Tarantino, because yeah. he's setting up to this whole thing where he's going to retire. But the whole... That that all kind of relies on him counting uh, uh, the two Kill Bill movies as one movie, which I know is a common thing. A lot of people do it, and if the, the director does, it. I guess that's what I should take a note from. But I kind of think that what if Shyamalan... I, like, had this thought of, like, what if Shyamalan started doing that, where he, like, started, like, announcing what number of his movies was in the trailers before they come out. But he, like... Changes the number each time, depending on which ones he wants to eliminate from your memory.
3: They're left with a lot of food, as the tour guide just points them in the general direction, as all good tour guides do. <laughs> I thought this was funny. Yeah. <laughs> He's
4: like, there's a lot of food. Goodbye. It's just like yeah.
2: driving off. Well, you know what? I to give him credit when I found out the reason why. I'm like, okay, that makes logical sense, considering that this is predetermined to uh-huh. a certain extent. Right. I thought that was actually pretty clever, because at first I was like, wait, I know this beach ages, ages you, so if they're in on it, why are they giving them enough food to seemingly last much longer than what the trailers tell you, which is a big problem? i got to say, the trailers spoiled way too much of this movie as far as the big scenes.
4: Mm. Well, there's one moment that I'm like, if this was not in the trailer that everybody saw because it was at the Super, during the Super Bowl – If this was not in the trailer and people just saw it in the movie, there was already a visceral reaction in the theater. But like if people if that was their first time encountering this image, it's the pregnancy. If there was the first time people encountered that image was in the theater, the shock that you could hear, I know, would be huge just because that is such a just upsetting idea. And it already is with everybody. Pretty much knowing that that's going to happen when they go into the movie because they all saw the trailer. And yeah, I wonder if that had been kept out of it, how much harder it would play. You know,
3: I will say, COVID restrictions or not, I think Shawlans shooting the film well. I like the zooms through the catacombs and the plants to get where his characters are going. As is the case with most Shyamalan projects, I think he's setting us up pretty well in these first beginning stages.
4: Yeah, I agree. I think the direction here in this movie is really strong. Um, there's really, like I said, the camera movements up until the end, and we'll get there, but up until the end, I thought the camera movements were all really well-motivated and pulled off in, in an effective way, and I think that he uses... The, both the, the sound and the visuals to convey a lot about the characters, what they're going through, and to hide things from us, in a, sometimes in a way that's obvious, but in a way that I think is smart, because this uh, premise could go wrong in a lot of different ways, I and mean, I think it, it, go, it does go wrong in a couple of ways, but I, I think that this is a, a very, I mean, I use the word a lot, this series, but a very confidently directed film, mm-hmm. and um, I think, you know, if, if I was going to fault this movie on anything, it wouldn't be on the management of the visuals
2: confidence is the right word i don't think there's anything in this movie that feels like a studio note or a compromise it's distinctly him for better or for worse i feel like you have to say that with every single movie one thing i do like with his with his shot compositions is that outside of the big perspective shots from above he does a good job of keeping the beach to like a strip yes you, like he doesn't really use the vastness of the sand beach itself. He does it with the the catacombs and the the people watching on the cliffs and the, the sheer size of the ocean, but the beach itself is not, the whole entirety is not used. Although... With the amount of times people run back and forth, they still ask, "Where are the kids?" I'm like, "You dumb motherfuckers!"
4: But <laughs> so you're right, though, that it's not—it's not like a, a western with big vistas, which, in theory, it could be, like, it will, because it is a beach and everything like and that. You could shoot the hell out of the sky and the horizon and make it look really huge and stuff like that. But it, it feels almost claustrophobic, mm. even though there's a lot, even though it's literally set in open spaces and everything. It feels—you you do get the sense of them being trapped.
3: Prisha challenges Guy to tell her what book she's reading, which he is stumped by as Miss Sai Sedan is found. Why does Shyamalan mm-hmm. have rappers in his later films? Why does he do this? I understand the premise is...
4: Wait, wait. What other rappers are his movies? Oh, well, remember getting getting the kid? Yeah, oh yeah. Does Henry rap? He listens to rap. Yeah, that's he, right. He
3: listens to rap, yeah. I understand the premise of having this guy here because they they want they want somebody who's well-known, blah, 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 which we'll get to the reveal at the end of this film. But this, this premise that he has of this guy... <laughs> this character is the most superfluous of all of them. You yes. can take him out and it
2: changes nothing. Because sure. one of my problems with the movie is that it contradicts itself a lot. And it's not consistent all the time because this character will have spent up until his death, he has spent more time on the beach than anyone else, yeah. but has not aged. Yeah. And they, they make a joke out of it with the stupid black don't crack line that got chuckles out of maybe one deaf guy in the front row. But outside of that, it doesn't make any sense why he doesn't look like, I don't know, he doesn't look like James Earl Jones by the end of this
4: movie. Good point. I had thought about that. Actually, I had thought about that, but <laughs> yeah, I had to, I was not talking about it too much. Yeah.
2: The biggest contradiction as far as not adhering to the rules. Now, granted, everybody in this movie, it's not just a beach, it's individual vortexes because everyone ages at a different rate. And...
4: Yeah. And you really can't think too hard about a lot of aspects of it just because it's like, well, wait a second, the food, they have to consume a lot of food, but well, hold on, how does that affect the, there's really, like, it's like a time travel movie where it's like, it should make sense up to a point, but at a certain point, if you expand too much energy thinking about it, you're just going to, it's like the scene in, in the second Austin Powers where, where he goes cross-eyed and then Michael York uh, just uh, says, oh, I think it's best if you enjoy yourself and just not try and worry about these things. And then he looks directly at the camera and goes, that goes for you, too. I think about that a lot in any kind of, like, time travel movie or anything that has, like, that kind of... Like, Tenet, I thought about that. Tenet needed Michael York to show up and say that at some point, Uh, but... uh,
2: I was screaming that in a theater.
4: But, no, you're right, though, because, like, this character is very superfluous, because I, you know, thinking about it right now, he's the only person... I wonder if this is why he is in the movie, is that he's the only person on the beach who doesn't have somebody else with him. He's the only person who's not there with their family. I mean, there's the the woman who dies, but he doesn't actually have a connection to her, and she's not in most of the movie, so it doesn't really matter. Well, and isn't the, I, isn't I the body went... they find
3: his girlfriend?
0: Yeah.
4: Well, no, not... she, well, hold on. Was she his girlfriend? She just a girl that he, like, was kind of... Yeah. He just met her,
2: right? It sounded like he met her at the hotel, because yeah. she, she had some other medical issue as well, and they, were, they went here to bond. Okay.
4: Yeah, it was like a one-night, you know, okay. kind of thing. That, yeah. So... I think maybe that's why he was included is that it kind of adds a different dynamic to it. But if that's the case, I feel like he almost needs to be the point of view character or close to a point of view character. If not quite on the level of the main family, then something close, but he's, he's really not. And it's, it's a a real missed opportunity. I think.
2: Avalon is as good as naming, at naming rappers as he is at, Directing
4: Mark Wahlberg I'll say that Well, former rapper I'll say this um, uh, I have not stopped thinking about The fact that his name Is Midsize Sedan Since I saw it a week ago
2: <laughs> Better or worse That is etched into my brain
4: I don't know Even even with the way This movie ends
3: I was so expecting Like him to have The closing credit song You know what I'm saying Just like he did With that kid <laughs> in The Visit <laughs> You know
2: Shyamalan's you know, daughter Has the
3: end credit yes. song Yes So that's his daughter Yeah, that is yes. his daughter Mm-hmm Oh, wow, okay. So we're seeing games of Chase being played, dolls being played with. The kids find something In the sand But that's nothing Compared to the body They find in the water The lady in the water I guess you could oh, say God, Fuck <laughs> you I, I, I don't have my tongue <laughs> You know I'll give Strammel on this He doesn't waste any time On how much these characters Are enjoying themselves You know He could have Spent a lot of time Trying to get us To know these people And understand these people But he gets to this Pretty quickly He makes this island Ugly from the get go
4: Yeah and Again I think that You know The movie is I'm Looking at it now. 180 Eight minutes so an hour 48 and uh like we've talked about this before he seems to be a fan of not necessarily the shorter is the better but like you know he kind of doesn't want to doesn't want to uh overstay his welcome and sometimes he does overstay his welcome even with the short run times but i feel like he he generally is a pretty good sense of pacing unless the movie is just complete crap in which case that kind of doesn't matter you know yeah but i i think that he, here it's, it's pretty well paced i at no point was i itching for the movie to, to to move on or anything like that i think that there's a good yeah like I said he, he doesn't mess around you know you know where the premise is going he's he has set it up perhaps uh, obviously but he has set it up and he he's gonna take you to to the beach where you get old
2: he wastes no time because of the short-handed bullshit he pulled about having the kid ask what all what, of what these people do and one of them is a nurse it doesn't give any kind of substantial medical advice throughout this entire
4: movie. <laughs> no, 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 because he helps him get the tumor out. And he's he's the one who really who really uh, is in charge of that scene, because Rufus Sewell's out losing his fucking mind. Yes. Uh, but, yeah, anyway, so I thought uh, about that, because shaman being from a family of doctors, I thought about, I wonder how that mm-hmm. influences that scene. It feels like something that's is an aspect of a lot of his films is that kind of the role of, medical field but anyway, anyways we'll, we'll get we'll
3: get into the plot again the mom notices her son's package is bigger which is one of the most awkward scenes i've ever seen in a movie <laughs>
4: well she doesn't say that i mean that would be but, but the but the,
3: the way she looks though it was like it was all conveyed in the look and i'm like god damn what a weird fucking scene um yeah because he says like
2: he just says like my bathing suit's too tight or something yeah i thought like he was talking about the waist until i saw her eyes and i'm like oh course even in this movie we're going to have a dick joke yep i will say that this is sort of a positive i like that Shyamalan takes the slow burn with not showing the new kid actors uh, for a little bit you'll hear audio you know, don't see their faces so i thought that that was done pretty well
4: yeah especially because of all the the, the the long kind of panning shots where he really is taking advantage of how much time he is spending on the actors that you're looking at to have these kind of Age jumps happen when the camera's not on them is uh, really effective, I think.
3: Miss Sai Sedan swears he didn't kill the girl. And of course, you know, Shaman's going to play up the, the racist aspect here of the doctor accusing him of doing so. Then we get told that there's no cell phone reception. And we're getting flashbacks with a blackout. And you mentioned the other actors in this movie. Thomas M. McKenzie was in God, my favorite movie. I think it was 2018, maybe 2017. Leave No Trace. It's one of my favorite movies ever. I love that movie to pieces. And I don't know what he what it is, man. He he picks out these girls, this Abigail Breslin, uh, Anya Taylor Joy, Bryce Dallas Howard. Like he picks out these girls that they have such potential and they have great careers, and he is just. Uh, masterful at like getting these actors to uh, be in his movies. And what he does with them is something that I mentioned last week about Anya Taylor-Joy being just a complete waste in glass, but I enjoyed Thomas and Mackenzie a lot in this movie, actually. I know her from Jojo Rabbit. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, she was a big uh, part of that. It well. was
2: my favorite movie of 2019. I still have not seen Leave No Trace. You keep telling me to watch it. Uh, I promise I will within the foreseeable future. As far as the, the kid actors, the, the casting director did a great job of finding kids to Slash adults to be the steady progressions as far as finding convincing kids as they right. age. Most of them, you know, I think all the kids have a couple stages. I know the kappa kids have at least three or four.
4: Yeah, well, I had that thought. I had that thought as um, I, I had the thought when I was watching it that like, oh man, there is a there's a real casting challenge here that they have to find not just like they have to find like four actors who can be believable. No, they have to find like eight actors. Excuse me. They have to find, like, eight actors who can be believable as the children of Gael Garcia Bernal and Vicky Krebs. Like, two very distinctive and different-looking people. Like, they have to find, like, someone with the right, like, who mm-hmm. looks the right a- ethnicity and, like, has the uh, enough of a similar appearance. It's, and, it's, and also because the actors have to play, like, when, when the, the six-year-old doesn't play them when they're... 11, but the guy who's playing him at 15 is also kind of playing him at 25 or, you know, whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. they don't. You know, there's not a little age counter in the counter or whatever, but you realize as you're watching it that, like, you know, not only are they aging up in terms of actors, but the actors themselves have to play uh, a breadth of ages, which at points actually, I think, it became uh, slightly confusing where Alex Wolf and Thomas and Mackenzie are... They don't seem to be aging at the same rate, although the characters actually are. But Alex Wolfe is just a little bit older than Thomas and McKenzie, and he looks it, even though he's playing uh, uh, younger. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
2: And the other thing is that the movie doesn't really get into the – obviously, they're growing physically and hormonally up to a certain point. But I get the sense that their brains stop maturing after a certain point.
4: Well, it's the, the way that they the way that they described it was sort of well, no, not I don't think they described it in the movie, but it was an interview. Is that they, they sort of thought of it as it like their brain is maturing in terms of their capacity and the complexity of their thought, but they don't have the life experience, mm-hmm. so they're they're still naive. But you're right that it, it's yeah, it's weird. I mean, it's a it's a premise that's so bizarre that, like, you know, there, there's all kinds of holes in it, and, like...
2: Garrett, in a lot of ways, this is a it's an indirect sequel slash spinoff to *Play of the Navigator.
3: Oh, Christ.
2: Because I get the sense that, like, once Alice Wolf and Thomas and McKenzie, sometimes they play it like they're, you know, 16, 18. Sometimes they still feel like they're 10. Yeah. Or... Yeah. Or, I don't think that's always consistent. I- I'm gonna say, for the record, I-, I missed Rufus Sewell playing Scumbags, because he was, like, the king of snobby, aristocratic assholes back in the early 2000s between A Knight's Tale, The Illusionist, and uh, Max DeZorro. I was so glad that not only is he in this movie as a British, we had to make him racist just because it's Rufus well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think he's, actually,
0: he's
2: really good in the movie. I'll say the, the one person that stuck in my craw was Jaren, the,
3: the nurse. Same. I thought,
2: oh, okay, fucking terrible.
3: I, I'm I'm with you on that.
2: Whenever he was like, "Hey, my name's Jer- my name is Jared," like, now
3: mm-hmm.
2: part of that's a dialogue, but part of it is that this guy, I don't think he ever convinced me that he could convey authority in this group. And we have reviewed this actor, Garrett. He was in X Men Three. No shit.
3: And wow. Pork- oh, okay. Good. I know
4: him best from the episode of Sopranos where he's the mental patient who oh, eats the shit out of Uncle June. Does you remember that one? Oh, yeah, okay, like, yeah. Like wow. Carter Chong or something like that? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. I'm looking at the Wikipedia now,
3: yeah. Oh, he was also a Red Dragon, so he's a Brett Ratner regular. Jesus. What an honor. So the three of us have reviewed him as well. Charles is being told to help these people through this. But a woman dies that he can't save, so apparently this is what causes him to go absolutely mental. We're hearing everybody's names and what they do as the kids are revealed to now be older, as is everyone. So we're seeing more mental breakdowns happen as Charles and Sedan seem to be seem to have massive headaches.
4: Well, I just want to say I don't I, don't want, I want to prevent you from getting any kind of well actually comments, but uh, the, the the reason why he's going crazy, why Rufusul Charles is going crazy, is because he has. Some kind of schizophrenia, yeah, right, which they which they bring yeah. up at the end, and so the years are progressing and it's becoming worse, but you know it's it's happening so rapidly that that's really what it is. At first, I thought maybe it was because he's the oldest of the people on the beach, other than the the, the mother, mm-hmm. uh, that maybe he was dealing with some like dementia, some early senility, you know, kind of coming. But now they, they they say it at the end that it was uh, schizophrenia, which which makes. A little bit more sense because I do think like I don't think as people get senile they become violent. Well, but also people who are schizophrenic don't necessarily become violent either. I don't know. People have complained about uh, Shyamalan's uh, portrayal of people with mental illness. Uh, We've before. complained and, about
3: it on this podcast. Yeah,
4: yeah, <laughs> right. So you know, th- this is another point in that uh, in that in that spreadsheet.
3: I'll talk about that once we get
2: towards the third act of the movie.
3: How do you guys feel Shyamalan's doing, creating a sense of paranoia here? I think it's okay once we start getting into the narrative here, the the main crux of the movie, the heart of the movie.
4: I think it's good. I think it's interesting that I was reading again about the original graphic novel, and apparently in the graphic novel, that element is less present in that when people die in the graphic novel, they die of old age. That's That's what happens to each character is that eventually at a certain point they get too old and they die. Uh, whereas in this, people are dying left and right because of murder or they die in some kind of accident. They're trying to swim away. They you have, you know, an epileptic fit. And so it's like it, it's more – it almost has like a slasher movie structure even though there's not that much murder in it. It almost has that kind of structure where people are kind of being picked off one by one. And that kind of pushes the movie – More in that kind of horror-thriller sort of direction, which is already inherent kind of in the premise. But there's parts of it that I almost feel like Shyamalan almost wanted to make a movie that had less of a horror aspect than his in some of his previous films, uh, it says here that Shyamalan described the movie as, quote, a Bergman blockbuster, unquote, which is a mm-hmm. pretentious comic, but Very but is right. kind of, I think, but I, I kind of see what he's, what he's getting at in the sense of, like, it really is basically it's a movie about aging, and it's a movie about how time is fleeting, and, you know, and how the people around us can make the fact that we're getting old and the fact that we will eventually die ultimately not matter, because you're sharing the time that you have with somebody that you care about. And there's something that's meaningful about that and everything like that. But then I feel like maybe just because of the fact that there's such, there's the horror inherent in the premise that he may, it maybe pushes him towards that kind of the idea of playing up the paranoia and some of the violence and stuff like that in a way that I do think is effective. But I wonder if this was not a horror movie, essentially, this was more of like, you know, in art film, uh, that's kind of a loaded word, but loaded phrase, but uh, if it was more like that, whether or not it would be more successful. I don't know. I don't know. Just something thing to mm. think about.
3: So Charles attacks Sedan, who was freaking out about the girl who had died, and we find out that she also had MS. We find that the cove is unswimmable. Matt, what is it with us reviewing movies with magnets as part of its main narrative? <laughs>
2: in movies. Much like Lady in the Water, this is a movie where people could hold their breath underwater for an <laughs> <time>. Yes. <laughs> Oh,
3: yeah. We'll get to that. If they had
4: run into Paul Giamatti under the water, I would have flipped my fucking shit. It would have been bigger than the moment at the end of Split.
2: I kid you not, Paul Giamatti should have played the main pharmacist. It could have been like he's reprising his role from the Truman Show. Oh,
4: shit. Yeah. Oh, that would be fun. Who was that guy? I don't know. We'll get to that. What do you guys
3: think about this reveal, about this cove being unswimmable and these rocks having some sort of magnets or something that keeps them from leaving
2: this is my big question going into the movie because I, t- I talk about this with Haunted House movies. Why don't they just leave? Right. Because mm-hmm. that was the big question from the trailer. It's not explained. It's
4: right, just leave the beach, yeah.
0: You know,
2: i right. like, why can't you just get in your car and leave? So they addressed both. A, there's no car. B, they have AT&T, so there's no there's no
4: bars. <laughs> no the classic thing horror movies have to do these days yeah, to absolutely. justify...
2: Yeah. Uh, th- th- this felt like a, a 90s thriller with some, like, you know, modern sensibilities and some modern aesthetics and some modern social commentary, but this gets into my, my big, one of my biggest issues, is that I think leaving stuff to ambiguity would have actually benefited this movie. It's, just say, a part of nature.
0: And it makes yeah. the characters,
2: the, the characters, it makes them all the smarter because they can decipher this, but it also makes them all the more stupid because it takes them so long to figure out, why don't we just swim, try swimming underwater?
4: Yeah. too much time spent on like the mechanics of like trying to get away and like or like can, can you escape and everything like that because ultimately the reason why it's there is just to prevent them from leaving so I think once you establish that that should just kind of be there and that'll tie into the ending there we'll get to that
2: I mean you should have just ripped off the fucking Hunger Games where they're in a dome I'll, I'll save that for later there was one scene that just
3: made me earlier today just roll my eyes because of how stupid it was Sedan so reveals he has problems with his blood, a rare clotting issue. And then we find out that the doctor, trophy wife, they've been having some problems lately. Prissa is also having a hard time catching her breath. And this is when the tumor is revealed. So we have an impromptu operation going on as the doctor's trying to cut the tumor out. The incisions heal really quickly. And the doctor keeps trying to think of a movie starring Jack Nicholson and Marlon Brando. And my God, was this fucking annoying.
0: <laughs> uh-huh.
2: I
3: gotta. so let me start with the with the surgical scene it
2: was pretty effective i like the whole thing of the you know you have to keep your hands in because it keeps closing uh-huh. mm-hmm. um, and like the tumor keeps growing but okay the, the shit about the missouri breaks which don't ask me why i know that movie i thought it was very insensitive the way that the schizophrenia was portrayed because it starts out as comedically like breaking the tension, but then it dissolves into regressing him into just a slasher villain in the third act. Yeah, I think think that is the part that does piss me off. And I find that highly insensitive. I'm not one of those people to complain about political correctness and all that kind of shit, but that fucking pissed me off the way everything with the schizophrenia was handled. You could have found another way to do it. You could keep the slasher aesthetic, but you start off with him. Like, you don't even have to call him schizophrenia. Just have him like mumbling to himself at the corner that its revealed later on that he just snaps, or you do like a Jason Voorhees thing, which they also kind of do because he talks to his deceased mother later in the movie. I think there there was a way to rework this without coming across. I don't know if this is as bad as what he did in the village with Adrian Brody, but I was I was more I was more upset by it with everything and how it was handled. Yeah, I like, that's totally. Like the, yeah, the stuff with Brando and Nicholson that might as well be the hot dog thing from The Happening.
4: Well, that's the thing <laughs> not, is that like so many of his characters talk like that weird way anyway. So it's like, that shouldn't be a sign that there's something, you know what I mean?
0: Like
2: yeah.
4: his characters all kind of talk like that anyway. like with weird obsessions, that is are like weirdly not acknowledged as being weird, but it's like, and here, here that's supposed to be a sign that he has some sort of terrible illness that is going to eventually turn him into, like you say, like a Jason Voorhees. Like, yeah, right. So it really is not handled well. I agree completely on that
3: going back to the surgery as a fan of body horror i kind of dug this and this is when the pg-13 rating i didn't even honestly i spent this entire movie thinking it was r i didn't realize till afterwards that it was a pg-13 movie we already got matt's impressions of it Uh, mike what would you feel about the operation here
4: yeah i thought it was pretty great i mean i thought that this moment and a couple other moments i mentioned the pregnancy and actually the, just the first moment where he slashes a uh, mid-sized sedan and then it heals extremely quickly. I thought there were some really just, like, very memorable images uh, using the premise of time moving rapidly mm-hmm. and the age, rapid aging. I thought there were some really great uses, like, body horror kind of moments, and I think this is, this is one of them, and it's, it's, a, it's a really great kind of use of that uh, to use just the tumor – as this, extre- like, as, like, a ticking time bomb. Like, that's so, that's, so, I've never seen something like that before. That's really interesting. Actually, I guess I there is something that it did kind of remind me of, which is a, a fantastic scene in a very contentious movie, which is the, the, uh, the, uh, Alien abortion scene in uh, uh, Prometheus. Uh, oh, yes. Which is a similar kind of ticking time bomb body horror moment. Uh-huh. But yeah, this I thought I thought it was a very good scene. And this was when I was really into the movie.
3: So the surgery is successful as Priscilla wakes up. And we see that the body that was washed ashore is now decomposing. And this is how they come to the conclusion that something is just not right with this beach and the way that time is going by. Another just nice reveal here this body's decomposed already. Oh, boy, things are going pretty quick. We find out that the mass on everybody is staying the same as they age, and then the teenagers, they start having some teenager feelings towards one another. Here's one thing that came to mind as I was watching this. You know, Shyamalan's strength in his best works is to ruminate. He's not doing that here. Do you guys feel like that's hurting the narrative? I I don't feel like I'm ruminating with these characters enough.
4: I think that the—I know what you mean, but here's the thing is that I think that the characters do ruminate, but only towards the end of the movie, because okay. that's kind of what the movie is about. Mm-hmm. Because at the beginning, they think, oh, my God, time's passing so quickly. We're aging so quickly. And they're all panicked and paranoid and they're frenzied and everything like that. And then by the end of the movie, when they realize that there's no way to stop it, they have a completely different relationship to how time passes. And they make up their own peace with it. And they enjoy the moments that they're spending together and the time that it takes to build a sandcastle. And so that is when the rumination kind of comes in. And I think that 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 is kind of crucial to the arc of this movie and the arc of the characters in it. This begs the question
2: of, you let the kids go off by themselves and you know they're aging. What the fuck did you think was going to (laughs) happen?
3: All right, let's get to that. So the other kids, they start digging into the food. And then it is revealed that Kara is now five months pregnant. This pregnancy does one thing that helps, I think. I I think it defiantly tells us just how fast time is moving. So I thought that was wise on Shyamalan's part.
4: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just a great image. I mean, it's just a, it's, yeah. and by great image, I just mean it's just so shocking and it's so upsetting. You just, you don't want it to happen. And like, yeah, I mean, cause you just, you know, this character was five minutes ago, like a five year old girl, and here she is. She's five months pregnant and she's an adult, you know what I mean? And it's, it's just, it, it's such a great, and it's like, it is kind of like, it's uncomfortable in a way that I, I genuinely appreciate it. In the sense mm-hmm. that, like, a lot of horror is like uncomfortable stuff that, is only uncomfortable because we know that it's supposed to be uncomfortable. Do you know what Mm -hmm. I'm saying? Uh, Like it's kind of safe uncomfortable. This genuinely felt like this is making people uncomfortable on like a very deep visceral level in a way that we haven't seen before because I can't think of the last pregnant five-year-old that I saw at a movie. Uh, It's it's a very disturbing image. I like that he went there.
3: That's a great point because, you know, on, on the horror that me and Matt, we've reviewed a hundred horror films on the show. But the stuff like the Freddy movies, like that's safe horror. You know, that stuff I watched as a kid and, you know, that that's stuff that I really grew to that as a teenager growing up. This stuff, this kind of stuff of this girl being pregnant, you're absolutely right, Mike. This is the stuff that makes you uncomfortable and this is not safe. So I, I agree with you. I think that that was pretty well done.
2: Yeah, this was the, the money shot that I wish was not in the trailer.
3: Yeah. Yes. Because I knew it was
2: coming, and there was no surprise. It's upsetting for the kind of movie it is, but mm-hmm. I think it's it's done pretty well.
3: So we get an impromptu birth, and then the baby just dies. We're hearing about Love Lost, as the doctor is now on a murderous rampage, having killed Sedan. Oh, boy. Um, you know, Shyamalan's using some weird camera filters during these scenes. But, Matt, you know what came to mind as I was watching this? It was in Sunshine, when all of a sudden that movie turns into a slasher film. yeah. That's what I thought of. Like it was really just, it just kind of came out of nowhere to me. And Matt, you mentioned earlier that you don't think this was handled correctly. I, I completely agree with you. I don't think this was handled well at all.
4: Yeah. Um, well, I actually kind of want to go back to the, to the baby dying okay. because I thought that in a way that the movie kind of chickened out in a way, as much as you can chicken out in a, with a baby dying, which is one of the most upsetting things that is just imaginable, you know, mm-hmm. and is, is uh so uh, terrible. But it was almost like they couldn't figure out what to do if there actually was a baby involved in the plot and, like, how that would work with the aging. And so they, like, they just had to write it out as quickly as possible because, from what I understand, again, I haven't read the graphic novel, so I'm not not pointing to it as saying it's better. For all I know, it's worse. In terms of the choices that Shyamalan is making, apparently that's not the case in the the graphic novel because apparently the graphic novel – literally ends with uh well nobody gets off the beach for one thing but it literally ends with the baby that she gave birth to which did not die but has been aging as well it's now fully grown and it's there on the beach and everyone else is dead and like i kind of feel like that's yeah and so in some ways like that's the natural conclusion of where the story kind of should lead in a way if it's you know if it's kind of just a metaphor for the aging process and just like kicking it up then i kind of feel like that's We'll get to the ending, but, you know, I I, I sort of feel like the film sort of peaks a little bit with the pregnancy scene and doesn't quite... Get to that level of uh, of uh, horror again, in part because of where he takes it immediately afterwards. But and yeah, and then yeah, and then you bring up the the, the murder, the violence between uh, uh, Charles and Midside sedan, and yeah, it's not it's not well handled for reasons that we went into. So
3: Jaron makes an attempt to swim out as the group starts revealing just how they were brought to this island. Maddox, she talks to Prissa and she says that there was indeed an affair involved in her decision to leave her dad. So Shyamalan's now making this about these adults having affairs. And what I like about this is it does reveal what's going on between them, but the movie is trying to tell us, you know what, in the end, that's not too important.
4: Yeah. yeah. Which I liked. Yeah. I kind of liked, I, I I really liked, liked that the stuff with Gael Garcia Bernal and Vicky Krebs. Like I thought that Mm they're just this portrait of a marriage, just like in microcosm slash macrocosm. Just the idea of like running the whole course of their lives into old age within a 24 hour period, I thought was just very tenderly done. And like, I thought the performances of the two of them were great, especially Vicky Krebs. I think she's Mm -hmm. probably the best performance in the movie. And I really love their last scene together. And we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But, and I also think that the aging makeup uh, on her was and that i feel like that's exactly the kind of elegant older european actress she'll be in like 30 years you know <laughs> well yeah. it's
3: it is kind of weird though that these kids are a- aging as rapidly as they are and these two get we get told that they have wrinkles and stuff but we don't see it till later on in the film i don't know it was just weird that the kids aged rapidly and they didn't
4: well it's easier to go from, or it's like it's more visible to go from 6 to 16 mm-hmm. than from Forty to fifty, you
2: know what I mean. I think the performances are good. My issue is that he's he's reducing it just to all the characters get reduced to just basic archetypes after a certain point. Of course, this couple is having marriage problems because that's the obvious thing to do, and of course, there's an extramarital affair, and we can't tell the kids, even though they're right next door and can clearly hear you. This is where sort of the more familiar tropes got on my nerves.
3: So this conversation causes Maddox to head out in the water to think about it. And then Matt gets his wish as here comes another body, which ends up being Jaron. Kara talks to Trent about how they're not getting off the beach and how it's just not fair that they're going to be missing their proms and everything that comes with being older. My question is, you know, she was six years old when she got to this beach. How does she know about proms?
4: Well, she was 11. He was six.
3: Okay.
0: And I
4: like the moment early on where she's looking at the teenagers on the beach who are... Just a few years older than her, really, but so much more like uh, adults it Just in the way that they conceive of themselves and like that kind of envious shot. I mean, it's not subtle or anything, but I like the way that that was done and just getting mm-hmm. little moments like that. I thought that was better done than some of the dialogue that was setting up the same ideas.
3: I wish shalon had done more of that, honestly, in this movie. Kara starts climbing a rock to find a way off the island, but she falls off and then she dies.
4: Uh... Yeah, I thought that was dumb. This pissed me the fuck
2: off because she's falling and you have six people there at least one of you can fucking spot her like good god
4: (laughs) I know I had the same thought I was like no 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 I understand it's going to hurt when she falls on you but catch her (laughs) yeah (laughs) I thought yeah any time a character dies in an accident not any time excuse me If a character dies in an accident in a movie, that is probably about 75% of the time bad writing, just because there has to be more of a purpose in writing than there does in life. Now, if you're making something like A Serious Man, where someone dies halfway through that movie in a car accident, and it kind of comes out of nowhere, then that works, because that's a movie that's like about the randomness of life. And this old movie is also kind of about the randomness of life, but not in that way. And so I thought that this was really bad, uh, dumb writing, but to have a character just die from climbing bad you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And I also, I, I liked the performance of, uh, Eliza Scanlon as uh this, this character. Cause I, and I thought that out of all the, the actors, she was actually, I think the best at playing this character as like five and 20 at the same time. I thought that was real. I thought she was the best at like finding that weird balance of like, you know, this, this non age that she's at. Um, and so I was, I was also just disappointed that she had died and, uh, Uh, And in the way that it happened, I thought was poor writing.
3: Patricia falls with another seizure. Here's a character we haven't seen in a while. And here she's, she's starting to get her seizures again. Meanwhile, Crystal, she goes on a hunt for Kara. And then she starts hating her looks as she looks in a mirror. And then Guy finds that he can't see and Prissa starts losing her hearing. So we're getting all these characters. Now they're starting to age quite a bit and there's some of their worst fears are coming true, including this Crystal character who haven't really spoken that much about. But it's just weird to see this vain character. And I guess Shama's trying to say something here. This vain character just look and see that she's going crazy because her looks are going out of whack.
4: Right. Well, you know, it's like the obsession with youth kind of playing out. I know some people have, found this character to be, or the portrayal of this character to be uh, misogynistic. Yes. They so I can definitely see, I don't know if I'd quite go that far, because there are definitely people who have that obsession, whether they're men or women or whatever, but I think the payoff with this character ends up being pretty great. Um, so I think that, that that makes up for a, a lot for me, but uh, uh, so not one of the better characters in the film.
2: She's also one of the few characters that doesn't really age She just had running makeup <laughs> Yeah like that, That's all that fucking is And then she turns into Quasimodo towards the end of the movie
3: <laughs> So Guy does tell Prissa that he saw some text messages And that the guy on the other end of those text messages Says some romantic things But that she could do better So are they really Do you think it's the same
4: guy from The Happening? The guy that was flirting with they should Just one womanizer character out there who's just romancing half of Philadelphia.
3: So are they realizing what's actually important here because she does tell him that there is no place she would rather be than with him?
4: Well, like I said, this was the part of the movie that, or like one aspect of the movie that I really liked was just the journey of these two characters and about how their personal kind of tensions and stuff, uh, when they took a look at the bigger perspective to how they didn't really matter because of how much they, they really did love each other and how much they made each other's lives worthwhile, that like little things along the way didn't really matter so much when you're aging 50 years in a day, you know. Yeah, so I thought that was really, I, I, I liked that a lot. And, uh, I, I, you know, I like, this was, I was like I said, probably my favorite part of the film. Like, not that scene specifically, but just the arc of those characters, because I, I, I just was really, I, I thought that the way that Bernal and Krebs played, it was very straightforward and very sincere and was the most effective of the, the film's attempts at giving emotional meaning to, to the characters and to the stakes of the movie.
2: Yeah, and I have to say that I was talking about what movies Shyamalan's done that this reminded me of. Obviously, The Visit, because that's about, on the surface, your body betraying you as you get older. And another movie with questionable mental health depictions. But I thought a lot of The Sixth Sense, actually, because this movie is also really about the difficulties of parenting and your shortcomings. Like, I thought of the Tony Collette character a lot. Watching this, not just because I see Alex Wolf and now I just think of Tony Collette uh, yelling at him at a dinner table. Mm-hmm. But I like how this movie sort of a commentary on how hard it is to parent. And the first time I saw this didn't really get me, now that the, the act has happened. I did not cry watching this movie. But between that and having a grandfather who's struggling with dementia, who's pretty much my dad, towards the end of this movie... I kind of had to look away, and I had one of those introspective moments where I kind of curled up into a ball by myself because if I started crying, I didn't want anyone to fucking see me. Um, So I can't really credit the movie for for hitting me like that. A lot of it's my my own life right now, but um, I,
3: I think these the quieter stuff, like as they're fading away, I thought that was pretty well done. Trent comes up with an idea of making a metal tube to get them out of there but they see a camera that is recording them, and ask, why would they do this? So, plot's starting to come together here.
4: Kind of. I mean, but Little bit. there's no way to predict where this is going.
3: I'm not saying that it's making it obvious. I'm just saying that sure. stuff is starting to come together.
4: Yes, yes. I did like the shots of blurry M. Night Shy- I don't know how you knew it was M. Night Shyamalan, because you do. I mean, they don't cut to a close-up. You can tell even from a distance that it's M. Night Shyamalan watching them. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I like those shots. I thought there was something uh, ominous in a fun way about them. this <laughs> like this silhouette in the, in the distance, like overlooking them and not doing yeah. anything.
2: Because it's M. Night Shyamalan and he oversees everything. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> he's sort of like Robert Rodriguez where he's like, all right, get the fuck out of the way. I'm doing it myself.
3: The couple is now approached by the doctor who attacks them because he feels that they're going to turn him in. Maddox and Trent, they go hide. But where they hide is where Crystal is and her state isn't much better. She completely mangles herself, as Charles gets rust in his bloodstream, and then he also dies. M Knight trying like his part. yeah. M Knight's trying his hand at some body horror here, and I think it's pretty successful for PG thirteen, especially. I was kind of jolted by these scenes.
4: Yeah, especially the woman in the cave with all those yes. mangled limbs. and I, I was like that is an image. I have not. I haven't really stopped thinking about. Or, you know, I mean, I, it's it's lingered with me since I've seen the movie, and it's like. It's very striking. I can't think of a movie that did something that was quite like that. And, and, and the stuff with Rufus Sewell uh, being poisoned so extremely yeah. rapidly, I thought that was really uh, pretty creepy, too. Mm-hmm. All right.
2: So I, I thought these were very effective, but I have to say I don't think the movie has a, a consistent tonal voice. Jolts are the right word. But I kind of wish this movie didn't come across as so unintentionally funny. Like, every time these characters converse, where it's like, oh, my name is this, and I do this, and I suffer from seizures. And everybody just calmed down. All the character interactions, they're so shablon because they're so awkwardly written. And the, the conversations are not organic. Whereas the, the body horror, so different than anything he's done. And they both work. But I kind of wish they were in service of a movie that had a more horrific tone. I'm not going to call this a horror movie at all. I don't even think I can call this a thriller. Really? Uh, oh, it is a
3: thriller. Come on.
2: It, it's a thriller, but I. Th- this is also the point where I started to check my watch is not correct, but I, I really think this would have been a much better like 45 minute Twilight Zone episode. Twilight oh. Zone. Well,
4: a that's a good
3: comparison.
4: Twilight. Yeah. Very. Well, a lot of his movies, I think you can mm-hmm. make the comparison. Yeah. And this one, this yeah, right, this is one where it being a film, it being a feature film, might actually place too much of a burden on it to, like, make sense in a way. Because if this had been a Twilight Zone episode, there wouldn't have been any explanation of why it was happening. It would have been people are on a beach and they're getting old and, like, that, that's just it. And then Rod Serling would show up at the end and tell you that it was all about how we should take more appreciation for the passage of time or whatever. Yeah, so, like, that is, I think, the weakest part of the movie is when it tries to make sense, basically. And it's a really good comparison to five Planet I think that, you know, you talk about, like, is this a horror movie? Does it always play like a horror movie? The tone is weird. That's true. Um, I, but I think that you can also say that about The Sixth Sense in that mm-hmm. it's kind of a horror movie, but there's also parts that are not like that at all. And I think a lot of his movies have very odd tones that I think are part of the reason why he has such a he gets such uh, wild and uh, divisive and often negative reactions to his movies is that he often doesn't give people what they want need are expecting that he's promising necessarily and there can be parts of his films that are better done than other parts and so the, the tone gets really kind of mixed up and I, I think this is almost a movie that I almost wish that he he didn't make it as a horror movie in a way. But then again, I do love the parts that are really kind of shocking body horror. So I don't know. Um, it, it's, an odd, it's an odd movie. And when I get to my final kind of statement on it, I, I think I'll, I'll try and tie it together a little bit more. But yeah.
3: This is also where Shyamalan's making his most interesting choices, I think, of the movie. He's distorting the lenses. And yeah. honestly, at this point, I thought there was something wrong with the projector. This is another reason I wanted to go again, because I wanted to make sure this was intended all these scenes of the the lens being blurred. Did you guys get that uneasy feeling at all?
4: Well, yeah, totally. I mean, and it's it's to, you know, reflect Brunhol's characters. Of course. Um, yeah. Yeah, right. And 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 what he does with the sound of Vicky Krebs too, I think is really because if I remember correctly, you guys have seen it more often than I more times than I have, but when she, when it's revealed that she's going deaf in one of her ears, it's kind of a it's not like an instantaneous thing because at first I just thought that there just wasn't sound going on in the scene. Uh, and if I'm remembering right. And then it's kind of revealed, no, there's been stuff that's been going on, she just can't hear it. And it's yeah. done in a, mm-hmm. uh, a way that I think is really effective. And, I, and especially now that because it's, it's taking place at night and it's dark and there's not a lot of lighting, and him using these ways to actually deprive you uh, in your senses from totally perceiving what's going on is, I think, really, it, it adds a new um, tone and a, a new mood to the film in a way that I think is really effective, not just in reflecting what the characters are going through, but also just kind of uh, keeping it from becoming monotonous.
2: When it initially first happened, I didn't take it as her going deaf. I thought she was purposely trying to block out the other conversations to, like, clear her head. And then once she started leaning into all the conversations, that's when I put the pieces together that she was going deaf.
3: Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking as well. So the Kappas, they're talking about their feelings and how this experience has helped put aside all the problems they had before. Trent and Maddox they figure they only have about 13 hours left so they go and build a sandcastle I found this scene to be rather sweet actually the scene of them building the sandcastle
4: I, I kind of loved this scene I, yeah, I, I kind of too. wish that the movie almost just like ended there uh, in a way um, that would be a totally different film uh, and the way that they described it like I thought that the performances of the actors uh, Eamon Elliot and Imbeth Davids I thought that they, they, were, they were good in that scene you really did believe like as I, I did at least as I was watching these characters that even though we hadn't seen them until that moment like these actors until that moment I felt the sense of the history of the, this brother and sister together I thought they had that kind of chemistry and the way I liked the line a lot about where they said I don't know if we are enjoying making this Castle because we were six yesterday or because this is just how everybody acts when they get to this age I genuinely don't know I just thought that there was something really kind of neat about that idea of like they're getting reflective and like nostalgic for something that was literally yesterday because of how bizarre this whole experience has been. And I thought, that, yeah, like it was really sweet. And just the idea of like the sandcastle, something that's like a structure, but it can only be there for until the tide comes. And mm-hmm. yeah, I thought it was a really nice kind of moment that I almost, I almost wish the movie had ended there, even though of course I know that it's not going to. It's
3: a great point, especially considering what we get at the end. To quote Good Will Hunting, "Son of a bitch, stole my line." I <laughs> wish the movie,
2: because I read this as there's certain parts of this movie, it's like the five stages of grief. I took this as acceptance. That yeah. They realized they weren't going to get off and were just going to enjoy living in the moment for what it was worth. And would have been a lot more of a nihilistic ending than anything Shyamalan's ever done, but I think it would have been better than what we got.
3: All right, so let's get there. So the message, (laughs) starting here, by the way, the message is revealed to be my uncle doesn't like the corral. And so they know the spot they can try swimming and not get affected is through the corral. So they start swimming, and as they're doing so, Maddox gets caught, and M. Night cuts from Trent trying to tear her free. He ends up cutting to M. Night himself. He makes a call saying that they both drowned and that the operation is going just fine, though the one person who escaped last year drowned anyway. Uh, this reveal of M night being the one Matt or Mike, you already touched on this, but could you make it any more literal? Like he's watching his actors out here, pretty much suffering through this whole ordeal. There's a pandemic going on. You know, there's like a whole bunch of things you can read into this whole reveal of him watching them the entire time. I don't know. I re- I probably read way too much into it. Well, it
4: invites, I mean, anytime the director of something appears in the thing, yeah. it doesn't necessarily mean that the character he's playing is reflective of his, of himself, but that is, kind of the immediate feeling and unless they they do something to disabuse you of that notion. And literally having him holding a camera, I mean, that just reinforces it. So, like, there's really no way but to interpret it that way, even though that's not what the film is about. Do you know what I mean? Like, it really – the film's not about director as voyeur or the controlling director. I don't think, really. I mean, maybe there's a reading of that that I haven't come across, but just kind of a a cameo that he put himself in that doesn't really – there's not really a meaning behind it. Yeah. Uh, it, it just ties into this twist. It's, it's more like his cameo in The Village, where he's like, he's he's there to to be part Diary. of what ends up being the explanation. Yeah. yeah, right.
2: That's the movie that this last portion reminded me the most of, With the, was The Village. Because it's unveiling the, there is a conspiratorial element to this. Oh, yeah.
4: Well, oh. And, and Glass has that, too.
2: Yeah, and there's a, there's also an ecological slash social message behind it as a as a means of justification. But I tried to read into Shyamalan's cameo, looking for subtext and couldn't do it. I think I drowned trying to figure that out. Which which by the way, speaking of James Bond, we watched James Bond try to rescue Vesper Lynde, and eventually he said, "Fuck it." <laughs> <laughs> this it's like Paul Giamatti landing in the water. <laughs> all I could fucking think of. is he showed up or Bryce Dallas Howard, if Story rescued them, I would have been kissed, first of all, but I would have stood up and applauded and said, bravo, you slight <laughs> <lying> fuck.
3: <laughs> all right. We've been swimming around it all damn podcasts. Let's get to it right now. Let's get to the twist. So we cut to some sort of scientific lab looking at each and every person who was there. And this particular set of people, they're named Trial 73, and this is revealed to be a trial of medicines that can have their effects known not in a lifetime, but in a matter of hours. This is where we hear that they actually cured Patricia of epilepsy and that the medicine to cure it will now be springboarded to thunderous applause.
4: So this is a bizarre ending. (laughs) It's it's so, it's his strangest twist in a long time. Okay, so obviously that's his reputation, that he has twists. Uh, But not all of his movies have twists. And a lot of the the movies that people might think have twists actually don't. Like, The Happening doesn't actually have a twist. But his last couple, I think he's been, like, sort of, like, edging closer and closer to, Mm. like... Making a big, huge twist, because like glass also has a big twist about a conspiracy element, but it's not as much of a twist because you, you you kind of know something's up or at least just like because it's a, that kind of comic book superhero setting, you it makes sense that there are evil villains. This is a is a bizarre ending. I almost think that this would be a good ending to a completely different movie. The problem with the ending isn't really that it's like executed poorly or that, well, although there are parts there, I don't know. It's just that it doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the movie. It Mm -hmm. just doesn't, this is not a movie about a twisted version of the pharmaceutical industry or the way that corporations treat people or the way that capitalism uses uh, bodies and uh, uh, human lives as fodder for its next profit. It's just not about that at all. And then at the end, it kind of, becomes that and I feel like like I said the the original novel didn't have that so this is clearly something that Shyamalan added that he thought that it needed to have for some reason I, I think he he says if this is going to be a feature film that's going to play in multiplexes across the world and in America and everywhere then this has to make a degree of sense it can't just be like a metaphor it can't just be like a bunch of people are on a beach and they age rapidly like people are going to want. An explanation, and so he gives them an explanation. But I don't think that anybody really needed or wanted this. I I certainly feel like the audience that I saw it with did not like the ending of the movie, and did probably did not like the movie as a whole in general. I, I felt I could sense a lot of disappointment as I was leaving that theater, and it just doesn't have anything to do with what is going on. And I don't dislike giving the movie a more or less happy ending. I mean, it's a happy ending with a lot of darkness to it because. Like the kid says in the very last scene, how would you feel if, if a 50-year-old man called you and told you he was your six-year-old nephew?
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
4: so, like, th- these characters have lost every you know their entire youth and their parents as well. So, like, it, it, there is darkness to it, but it, it does have, like, a hopeful ending and that the bad guys get brought to justice. It's almost like a Hayes Code, like 19... 19- forties ending, like where like there's a lot of bad shit that happens and then but we have to show that evil gets punished and crime doesn't pay and everything. I you know, I'm not necessarily opposed to that, uh, because I think sometimes, you know, a happy ending is worth it if you take in the audience through the ringer, but it's just so uh irrelevant to what goes on before. But I will say I don't think that the ending affects what goes on before either. That's what's kind of weird about it, is that it has it the ending gains no power from the previous movie. But it also doesn't, to me, uh, hurt what I've seen before. It doesn't change the emotional impact of the stuff with Garcia Bernal and Krebs. It doesn't impact the, the same cast it's seen to me. It doesn't violate any of that. It just is almost just like it's completely tacked on from nowhere.
3: It kind of feels Metaclorian esque, doesn't it? Like you're giving an explanation that nobody actually asked for. Like, if you're going to give the explanation, why not explain how these people are growing old as they are? Is this on Indian burial grounds, as we're going to hear with Stephen King when we go into those? Well, how exactly are they aging? That's the weird part to me is that's not even explained. You're explaining why they're doing it. You're not explaining how.
2: Yeah, and you're also over-complicating yourself. Yes. This is the equivalent of the doctor at the end of Psycho. Very oh, yeah. uh, that, that's what I thought of a lot, and that's one of the only times you'll hear me compare Shyamalan to Hitchcock. <laughs> that's kind the of fact that he does cameos. The, the weirdest thing, the statement he's trying to make, if there's any sort of commentary, is the most rudimentary one possible of big pharmaceuticals often have their own interests at heart, not the common good. That's been done to that. I could watch, a doc- I could watch Michael Moore's Sicko and hear about the horrors of the healthcare industry. (laughs) Um, Like Mike said, it doesn't ruin what I've seen before, but it doesn't add any new, like, wrinkles, (laughs) pardon the pun, Uh to the overall experience. It doesn't, I don't hate the movie. Like, it's almost, it's a twist just because it's unexpected, but it's not one that affects, I don't think it's going to affect my overall score. Yeah. Outside of how it, wraps up. The reveal I'm okay with, it's the follow-up and the resolution that does not work for
4: me. Yeah, just, like, the follow-up and the resolution is the part that I really thought was, like, I like I like so I read something that this might not be for. it could just be somebody on the internet who's bullshit, but I read somebody on the internet who said that they were in a test audience for this film, and that the last couple of, like, shots were not in the movie. The stuff with the helicopter, the stuff where they're in the helicopter flying away, and... Uh, that, that the movie basically just ended with the uh, the flashback to uh, uh, them uh, untangling from the coral and so explaining how they got off the beach after they've already... It's, so so essentially it ended in the same place but without the same exact final scene. It, like the characters, the ending was still the same in that the bad guys got punished and the good guys managed to get off the beach and everything like that. But that actual last scene of them on the helicopter and like that final shot of, of the, the waves of the water and everything, that wasn't in there. And that makes perfect sense to me because I was watching that last scene and I was the only time in the movie, that, that last scene with them on the helicopter and then that last shot, There was the only time in the movie that I thought, I, I genuinely don't know what he's trying to say with these shots. Like, I, I don't know what story he's really telling with these final... That's the only time in the movie, I thought, this camera work doesn't feel uh, like it's motivated. And uh, I, it's an odd, odd way to end the film, I mm. thought. Uh, and not odd in, in the sense of like it's uh, funny, like uh, like it's uh, surprising. It's just I, I felt like he was like, well, I guess I need to add one more scene to, I guess, wrap it up a little bit more, but it, it really doesn't wrap it up anything more. So it's kind of... It, An odd ending that almost bothered me more than the than the actual twist because, like you said, the twist because like what the twist does is it doesn't change any of the characters. It doesn't affect their arcs at all. Uh, So it's it's just kind of um, uh, or what came before that. So it's just kind of plot and it doesn't really it, it doesn't twist too much of our perception of the characters. So yeah, weird ending, weird ending, and it's it's like clearly is like the most like, the messiest, most compromised kind of part of the film. Because other than that, I think it's a very confident film. All
3: right, let's get to the end here. So we cut to the director, not Shyamalan, but the actual guy who's running things in the movie, who finds Iblin, the little kid from earlier, and tells him what kids to play with. We then run to that police officer again, and now the plot really thickens. The director is leading another set of people into their paradise. As Trent and Maddox, they make their way in. Iblin is given his message by Trent. And what is up with the waitress's eyes? It was like she was a werewolf or something. I thought
2: she was under hypnosis that like he drugged all his employees.
3: To make, I don't to make know, man. Decisions. It was really weird. I I watched it the second time. I'm like, did her eyes actually change? Yes, those are different colored eyes. All right, hypnosis would be an explanation for that. That's a good uh, conclusion.
2: Hey, the stupidest thing I thought of about explaining the aging. What's that? I thought it was going to be that the the water, literally the water from the beach. Yeah. Mixed with the coral. And it's like emitting radiation that's causing them to age. I'm like, what's the dumbest thing that he can do to explain it? As dumb as it is plausible within the confines of this. And the fact that that part is not explained, I think, is my biggest issue. Is just the fact that they don't explain why they age. And the ending shots of the helicopter, I thought of fucking Jurassic Park.
3: Yes, me too. (laughs) Absolutely.
2: You a fucking to be flying alongside them.
3: <laughs> we then see what happened. Over the...
2: <laughs> it might as well be fucking InGen.
4: Why does he say Jurassic Park? Is also, a movie about how things, cha- how life forms change over time.
3: Yep. We then see what happened under the water. Trent was able to cut medics free, and they ended up swimming to safety. They are helicoptered out, and. They are told that their aunt will be waiting for them when they land, which begs the question: What then? As they ruminate on this, and then credits roll. On I want to see that
4: movie. Yeah, I me too. See the where it's these two people trying to uh, uh, reintegrate into society. Yeah, like Inbet David said, middle school. I think that would be great. <laughs>
3: All right, that was quite a summary. I'm glad I saw it twice so I can get it more succinct because, my God, what a what a plot we just went through. Uh, on a scale of one to ten, what do we give old? Mike, sir, you go ahead and go.
4: Uh, I'm going to give this a seven out of ten, um, which I think is a, a, a thing. I think it's the rating I also gave to uh, Glass. I re-listened to that episode the other day because I wanted to... Get in touch with the old me, uh, the me who used to make sand castles. The, the younger me from a more innocent time when I was reviewing Glass a few months ago. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, 7 out of 10, because I think that it's similarly to Glass. I think this is a movie that does a lot of things very well, some things not well at all, but on the whole... There's nothing about it that I really hate, and I think that ultimately, if someone asked me to, if they wanted to see this movie, I would say, yeah, you might not like it, but you should see it. So yeah, seven out of ten. I think that this is a much, much more successful version of like, I think that the movie that this is the most like is The Happening. The actors are better. I think this is Shyamalan trying to make a, a '50s B movie. The it, it, I think it's a little more drilled in up until the ending. It's a little more drilled into what it's trying to say. And it kind of reminded me a little bit of, um, like, some of the movies from the 50s, like The Incredible Shrinking Man, which are, like, these, like, science fiction, like, kind of uh, cheesy, in theory, movies. But they have, like, some, like, really interesting things to say about, like, like because it just like is looking at it from a slightly different perspective and so i think that this movie is mostly successful and despite some obviously some some huge things that are weird about it i'm going to give it a seven out of ten because i think that there's i'm glad that Milan is out there and i'm glad that he's making movies like this
3: matt sir well what are your thoughts
2: my thoughts are that this movie aged me exactly 108 minutes and i didn't hate how time was moving i will say that the the movie on the whole it's got a very basic message live in the moment, cherish the relationship to have while they're still there. I don't think this is the best example of that story, but I think this is Shyamalan sort of re-engaging himself on a technical level. A lot of the pretension is gone from the camera work and some of his other things, but unfortunately, I think the script is... This one is the perfect example of, I want to see what Shyamalan does with someone else's script Mm. That is not the last airbender that's not a pre-established property but like a wholly original idea that Shaman just shoots it because I think this is one of his best looking movies maybe ever. But as a horror movie it doesn't it doesn't really scare me. It creeps me out like the pregnancy scene but expectations kind of tampered that a bit for me. I think this would have worked better as a a really good Twilight Zone episode, and I wish that's what it was, because I don't think it quite justifies the runtime. And once you get to the, the last 20 minutes or so, I think it does run out of steam. I wish it ended, although I know mainstream movies don't have a lot of downer endings nowadays. But all things being equal, because there's so many inconsistencies with the aging and a lot of other issues I've brought up, I can't quite give this movie a six, but I think it's a five because it's It's not the worst thing I've ever seen. I think this is like, if I had to rank Shyamalan's movies, this would probably be smack dab in the middle. Where the stuff he does well, I think is done really well. But his problems are still very, very much at the forefront.
3: Yeah, I'm actually more with Mike on this. Because... I do feel like this is one of Shyamalan's best movies since his comeback. I'll go ahead and say that. I enjoy a lot of aspects of this movie. I enjoyed his direction of the horror parts of this movie. I enjoyed the unease I felt while watching this movie. I did not enjoy the inconsistencies that plague almost every single one of his goddamn movies. Matt, you hit it right on the head for me, dude, and I had it right in my notes. Take somebody else's script and direct it. Because he is obviously a very good, sometimes great director. He can set scenes up beautifully. He can set moods up beautifully. He sets these shots up beautifully. And of course, his DP had a lot to do with that as well. But his script is just a fucking mess. But I will say, both times I watched this movie, I walked out pretty satisfied. I do think this is a movie that does scream Shyamalan's name at points. Especially when you see him on screen to bookend the thing. But it's still... A pretty decent movie that he should not get laughed at for a movie like this. I think this is a very bold film. I think this he has a lot to say in this movie. And I think the interviews I read with him talking about this really hit with me where, yeah, I'm getting older. My kids are getting older. They're side by side with me, directing with me. Where has time gone? But this is him trying to say that in a very well way, directing wise, but God, script wise, get a Co-writer, get somebody who can help you lay these things out because you can direct very well. But God, you you're writing the the some of the dialogue in this it's it's unfathomable. This is when a producer comes in handy. They take dialogue like some of the dialogue that's in this movie and they say, "Dude, you can't do this. Straighten this out a little bit," you know. And I think a, a few scenes of this movie could use that. But still, I enjoyed some aspects of this, and I enjoyed a lot of the way it played out. So. I'll go six and a half. I can't quite go seven. But six and a half is enjoyable enough for me. Six and a half for old. All right, boys, we have gone through M. Night Shyamalan's entire, well, almost his entire directing resume. I left out the first two for obvious reasons. We,
4: we only do the ones he acknowledges, I guess.
3: Yeah, I guess that's. I guess we're following in his footsteps. He has done, you know, Wayward Pines and Servant, both things I have seen at least an episode or two of, and
4: they're they're they enjoyable Is Servant enough. good? I kind of was yeah. curious about Servant. I,
3: I would say it, its mood is perfect because it's not two hours of it; it's forty-five minutes of it, and it moves sure. rather well. And I I do enjoy aspects of the shows I have watched. Yes,
4: I might check that out.
3: Matt, have you seen any of Servant? Yes, I did exclusively for Rupert
2: Grin because he hasn't really done a whole lot since Harry Potter. I find it pretty engaging. I've only seen the maybe four or five episodes. I know he only directed the pilot of, from what I've seen. I know he's done episodes after that. But I actually think episodic TV might be a strength because that you really have to make sure you have a story to tell. Mm-hmm. And I remember years ago when he was attached to Tales from the Crypt, I would have liked to have seen him do that because I think anthology storytelling makes be a strong suit of his as well especially if he was directing other people's ideas
4: you know what i'd love to see would be i know that uh, before there was the the recent um twilight zone show with jordan peele hosting there was some i don't remember what studio it was but there was some studio that was thinking about doing a um twilight zone movie uh, kind of I, I don't know if it was supposed to be like have a similar structure to the, uh, extremely cursed 80s film, but I always thought that, like, if you did, like, a, uh, like a, an anthology film where it was, like, Shyamalan did a segment, look, Jordan Peele could do a segment, uh, I don't know, Ari Aster or Nolan, or I don't know who else you would, you'd want to get into that, but, like, you know, you, you had these different directors show up and they each did, like, you know, four or five segments. Then uh, that that something. I'd like to see him do something like that. I don't know. That's a very specific kind of request, mm. but that was just an idea I had.
3: Time has come to rank these movies. We have spent six, seven months watching. Matt, do you have a ranking all set?
2: Yeah, I do. Should I start from the bot from the top and work my way down? Yeah,
3: start from the top. All right. Yeah, because I want to be positive. Because <laughs> God knows there's going to be a point
2: where I just get angry. Did so, you, huh? <laughs> uh, number one's Unbreakable. I think that's his best movie. Number two is The Sixth Sense, and I'm pretty sure all three of us are going to have those as the top two in some order. So now we come to number three. I went with Split. I think for all the the shortcuts it does take with sort of the psychiatrist, I think McAvoy gives a tour de force performance, and I will always enjoy watching him in that movie. Number four, I went with The Visit. Number five, I went with I was torn. I had signs and old battling it out. And I'm going to give the edge to old because it doesn't fall apart for me in the way that science does once you hit the third act. So I got Unbreakable Sixth Sense, Split, the v- Visit, Old, signs. Then I would go The Village. Then I would go The Happening. Then I would go After Earth. Then Glass, The Last
3: Airbender, The Dog Shit at the Bottom of My Shoe, <laughs> and Then Lady in the Water. <laughs> uh. The one thing that I predicted was Lady in the Water being on the bottom of that, so interesting. Now let's get to the man who has watched a lot of these for the very first time. Mike, what's your order look like?
4: So I was actually um, intrigued by how similar our lists were at the beginning and then how wildly they went apart in the end. Um, So, Mike, you were wrong, by the way, about your prediction, because my number one is Unbreakable, which is his best film. Uh, I think pretty clearly, I mean, I think that's the one movie that really, it just kind of works on all levels. I think it's just got great tone, pacing, great performances. It's an interesting take on that kind of genre. It's just, I think, a really great film. Um, I, I think pretty unambiguously his best film. But my number two is actually not The Sixth Sense. My number two is Split. Um, yeah. And my number three is The Sixth Sense. So that's the only real flip in those in that top five of ours. But yeah, my number, and it was a close one, it was a close one, and I and I thought Sixth Sense is a more elegantly kind of made film. It, it, ha, it has, like, fewer flaws than Split, but I gotta say, Split, just seeing that, and maybe I'm overrating it a bit because I saw it in the theater, but I, seeing that, I got such a charge out of it and such a thrill out of it. Like you said, McAvoy gives a tour de force performance. That is one that I was so eager to revisit, and it really... It, it held up for me. So that's my number two. I think Split is a very fantastic film. And then number three, The Sixth Sense, really another... another. These top three, I think, are all really very, very strong and um, I think are in the, the top tier. And Sixth Sense, uh, again, an excellently made film. My number four is The Visit, which is where you had it. My number five is also old, uh, which so cracking the top five there. Um, and then... This is where things get kind of, I think, weird for for, for the comparison between the two lists. My number six is The Village. My number seven is Glass. My number eight is Signs. My number nine is Lady in the Water. My number ten is The Happening. My number eleven is After Earth. And my number twelve is The Last Airbender. And some of those, you know, I, I don't know if people have listened to the other episodes and they might think that some of my rankings might be out of place with the ratings or whatever, which I, might, I can fully cop to. I think I underrated The Village at first. I think it's grown upon thinking about it. But I think that basically uh, these are kind of ranked by the order that I would willingly rewatch them. And that's why Last Airbender is at the bottom, because I would rather rewatch Lady in the Water uh, just because I Paul Giamatti, I guess. I mean, I've listened to that episode that we did, and it's fucking hilarious, yeah. uh, if, if I'm allowed to say that about our own show. But um, – Lady in the Water, I think it's terrible, but there's a weird enough there that I prefer it to The Happening After Earth or Last Airbender. But yeah, so yeah, Unbreakable Split Sixth Sense Visit, Old Village, Glass Signs, Lady in the Water, The Happening After Earth, and The Last Airbender. That is my ranking.
3: Wow. Matt's right on my end as well, although I hold Sixth Sense still as number one. I I get so emotionally invested in that movie, and I think a lot of that has to do with Haley Joel Osment's performance. I think that... Still to this day, that is the best performance that's ever been in one of his movies. I, I just think he is astounding in that movie and he carries it and that I get invested every single time I watch it. The couple of missteps in that movie don't deter me at all from loving that movie to death. Then comes Unbreakable, which is probably surprising to a lot of people because when I reviewed Unbreakable, I was kind of apprehensive on it. But I think the mood that he sets in that movie and the way that movie carries itself and he is so invested in that character. And I think Bruce Willis gives one of the best performances of his career in that movie. And I think he carries that movie as well. I enjoy Unbreakable quite a bit and uh, ruminating about it. Number three, you know, I went with old. Um, Wow. Yeah. In watching it a second time, I thought about it, and I think that that is one of the most emotional movies he's ever done. I think it's a very personal film to him. And in watching it again, I see where he's coming from on a lot of it. Yeah, there's some parts of it that are the plot points are unbelievably, what are you thinking? But emotionally, like The Sixth Sense, I was invested in a lot of the characters in that movie. So old would be my number three. Then I went with Split. I think that one is a tour de force by Boy, as we've mentioned, and Anya Taylor-Joy is, uh, is very good in that one. Definitely one to check out of his, especially if you're looking for like a non-M Night movie. I think that more than anything, like he sets his, he sets himself apart with that movie because of how much he does with the whole kidnapped aspect of it. Then I went with The Visit. I think The Visit is, I mentioned everything I mentioned in that sh- on that show, so you need to, you know, just listen to that show to say, hear what I have to say about it. But going to grandparents' house as a kid is something that I was always afraid of, just because it was they're just so different than what you are as a five, six-year-old. You know, and so I think a lot of things that he toys with with that in that movie are very well handled. Then I went with Lady in the Water because honestly, here's the thing about Lady in the Water: I think that movie needs to be seen. I think. To see somebody's ego get that out of control is something that you cannot take your eyes off of. Me and Mike mentioned this countless times on that show. So if you want to hear those thoughts, you definitely need to go back to it. Because I agree with Mike. I think that's one of the best shows that we've ever done. Not just us three, but this show, period. I honestly feel like that needs to be seen to be believed. Then I went with Signs. I think a lot of the stuff in that movie, especially the home video part of that movie, is one of the best scenes he's ever pulled off as far as suspense and jolts go. I think that movie is, uh, until this third act, very, very well handled. But man, the, the effects in that movie and everything, oof, don't get me started on it. Uh, the Village, another movie that relies on its mood. Uh, the way he handles mental illness in that, Jesus Christ, don't even get me started on that. But still, I think some parts of it including you know, some of the mood and some of the way he builds scenes. There's a couple scenes in that movie that are some of his best work, but as an overall narrative, it doesn't really work. Then we get into some shit. Glass, I said my piece on that last week. You kill your main character in two and a half inches of water. I'm sorry. That, that it's just that just shows where his where his pro where his priorities lie in that movie. McAvoy is about the only thing to really watch in that movie, and damn Shyamalan for the way he handled Annie and Tyler Joy in that movie. Then I went with After Earth because I'm not a fan of Will Smith, as people have listened to this podcast know, and that movie was so un- Shyamalan that it just he went to blockbuster. Filmmaking territory, and that just didn't work whatsoever. Then the happening. I know people like saying, well, it's such a good, it's such a funny movie because of what he thought he was making. No, I think that movie's unwatchable, honestly. I think Mark Wahlberg, I think he's actually trying in that movie, and it comes off as so poor. Aside from the opening scene of that movie, I think that movie is very unwatchable. Then, of course, The Last Airbender, because (laughs) you talk about somebody trying to adapt something and turning it into utter shit. Although the one part I love about that movie is the score. I think it's score is very awesome. I, I have listened to that score many times since it is phenomenal. That's some of James Newton Howard's best work, but if that's the one thing I can lay my hands on and say that Shyamalan tried doing something with this and, utterly failed and have that be the only thing that stands out as a score, then there's something very wrong. So yeah, Last Endbender is last for me. But I've enjoyed going through these with you guys. They were trying to, I'll go ahead and say this, they were trying to push Edgar Wright on us to do on this series. But I push for Shyamalan because I think there's so many parts of this man's career that need to be examined. And I have had so much fun going through it, especially the fact that a lot of these Mike hadn't seen. Mike, had you enjoyed going through these?
4: Yeah, this was a blast. I mean, when I was in the middle, I think in the, uh, what episode is it? It might be the After Earth episode. There is one where you can pretty much hear me, like, my soul give up, like, in the middle of the episode, and I start wondering about, like, if I should become a cat boy or something. I don't know. It turns into, it takes a weird direction, but there was points when it wasn't fun. But as a whole, I really liked doing this whole uh, experience, and I think it's uh, improved, how I would have looked at some of these films, and like you know, just put, be putting it all into its own kind of context and watching the ebb and flow of it all. I've had a great time talking them with you, and I'm I'm glad that I got to know him, Night Shyamalan, this this weird guy, this this, is, this strange strange uh, very talented, very odd uh, man uh, who um, makes movies that aren't quite like. Anybody else's and in an age where the director and the writer are both uh, increasingly, uh, I think, marginalized in Hollywood filmmaking, a guy who is so much a director and so much a writer going out and doing this shit um, time after time, uh, putting his own money behind it, too. There's just something about it that's so, uh, is really endearing to me, even if Last Airbender is the least endearing thing <laughs> anyone can imagine. So, yeah, I had a great time doing this.
3: And Matt, it's finally over, sir. It's fine. We're finally through all of Shyamalan. How happy are you right now?
4: It was worth the ride,
2: although there were some parts where I wanted to jump out of the car, there were some <laughs> points where I wanted to leave my ass for dead at the rest stop. But all day. These- being equal. I'm glad we, we, we to do, we don't we do do a lot of director-specific ones. I think this is only the second one we've done after Christopher Nolan. Yeah, we and went and Michael Mann. Nolan. We did Michael Mann as well. Oh Yeah, we one. did Michael Mann as well. Okay, so we went from Michael Mann to Christopher Nolan and Night Shyamalan. I guess Polly Shore is coming up next.
3: <laughs> if next. <laughs> Let's talk about what's coming up next. Uh, we have um, The Lord of the Rings, as, we, as we've already announced, but me and Matt have also been recording things. The Thing to be more specific we are doing the thing retrospective which contains the thing from another world the john carpenter movie and the mary elizabeth winstead starring prequel sequel we've already recorded the john carpenter movie and at the end of that podcast we're still trying to figure out exactly what the fuck this thing that came out in 2011 is but that'll be what's coming up next and those have been fun shows to record and mike stay tuned sir because i have an idea for us to do next that uh, i think you're going to really enjoy (laughs) <laughs> no, 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 it's not it's not going to be bad. But until next week when we start going into Lord of the Rings this podcast, it's beautiful. Thank you, gentlemen.
4: says hi she says she's sorry for taking the bumblebee pendant she just likes it a lot
1: the binge movie aftertaste is produced by Garrett and Matt Joseph did you load that gun
3: You won't get hurt.
1: Elijah was wrong.
2: There's a monster outside my room. Can I have a glass of water?
1: Voice narration done by Adam.
0: You, alone, will follow the road and leave Covington Woods. Garrett, maybe people are setting off the plants. What are you saying? That guy was crazy. We have to save them. They're already dead.
2: Drop those things There's um, there's lots of visual tension
1: To whom am I speaking with now? Dr. Fletcher, it's past.
0: know what to wear.
4: At this point, you're good. You're better. You're okay, you much better.
3: Okay. All right. We're good. Gonna... Let me know.
4: Let me know if it if it ever dips out or anything like that because i kind of I'm kind of in a position that could shift.
3: <laughs> okay. <laughs> position that could shift. Do I even want to? I've manage? got
4: it. I've got it on a on a tray on my lap. Okay. So I'm going to try and be very straight and stable, but.
3: All right. You, you sound pretty good right now. Well, look, I'll let you know though. You okay. know me. I'm a, I'm a producer at heart. If, so,
4: if you're
2: struggling with a phallic object balancing on your lap, I could give you some
3: points on that. <laughs> 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 First blooper of the show. What? No. Um, I think yeah, I'm kind of it... interested. In... Oh, go ahead. Go. No, you go ahead.
4: I'm kind of interested in revisiting it. What? No. I feel like there's a version of this movie, and you guys might think that this is that that movie, but I think there's a version of this movie that is a total, complete, incoherent mess. And the fact that it's not that, I think a sign that there was a lot of care that went into, for the most part, the direction of this, if not necessarily the screenplay, because I I do think that's one of the shakier parts of it.
3: Boy, you assume so much, Mike. We've heard Matt, but come on, you haven't heard my feelings yet. (laughs) <laughs> okay, it's a good point. I'm
4: sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just giving you shit.
0: What? No.
4: And yeah, I wonder if that had been kept out of it, how that scene would, how much harder it would play. You know. I yeah.
2: guess you could say it was the happening of the trailer.
4: <laughs> oh, I thought I thought you were going to say I. I guess you could say it had gotten old by this point.
2: <laughs> Jesus no, Christ. No, I guess. I guess. I mean, there literally are ladies in the water in this movie too. All right. All right. Sure.
3: I will say COVID restrictions. I will say restrictions are not. What?
0: No.
4: If not quite on the level of the main family, then something close. But he's he's really not, and it's it's a, a real missed opportunity. I think.
0: Matt.
2: Oh, I, I said my piece already.
0: Mm.
3: All right. Sorry about that. So what? No. So we're seeing more mental breakdowns happen as Charles and Sedan seem to be seem to have massive headaches. Well, I long, should say just oh, because I, I want to prevent you from start getting, start
4: getting, that getting over. Getting start comments. that over. I'm
3: sorry. I started,
4: no, no, no. Well, the, uh... what? No.
3: And then Prissa, office, uh, Prissa's, uh, uh, what? No. But she falls off, and then she dies. Uh, yeah, I thought that was dumb. I, oh, my God. It, it,
2: it, 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 yeah. oh, because she's falling. You Hold on, Matt Matt, Matt. Matt, Matt,
3: Matt. Finish, finish, finish eating before you go into your tirade. <laughs> okay. This, All is,
2: right. this pissed me the fuck off.
3: What? No. So are they realizing what's actually important here? Because she does tell him that there is no place she would rather be than with him. Matt, is this some of that lazy writing that you were talking about? Give me two seconds. i uh, just turn bite. Okay. <laughs> Jesus Christ.
4: How much are you eating? You get, you've got aging? Like, you have to eat so much? You've got pasta salad that you're...
3: <laughs> God. No, but
2: I've been downing, uh, i got to say, these, Um, I don't know what the
3: fuck these are. Alright, we'll we'll let we'll let Mike go first before you, Sorry. you go. When you
2: guys have kids, you will learn that you do not eat at times you fucking want to. <laughs>
3: uh what were we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> um when Prista starts telling him what's more important between Oh
4: them. yes, yes, yes.
3: What? No.
4: This is a is a bizarre ending. I don't even like like let me let me find the words here. Meryl.
1: Meryl. Swing away. You've been listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network at BingeMedia.net. Support the show by donating on Patreon at patreon.com/slash binge media. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't
0: forget,
3: shut up! I'm wasted.